The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. So, or bring the light to them. I will warn your audience that my website, adobserver.org, if you post it to Facebook, you, uh, your content, your post will be removed. And if you do it too often, you will get a, a temporary ban. But oh. if you share the In Lieu of Fun episode with this, in fact, we should go live on Facebook. Ben, we should ben. add. I have. What? We're already live on YouTube. You we're live on YouTube. YouTube. I'm adding. <laughs> I'm adding Facebook to this. Okay. Um, and yes, let's see if it this. Yeah, I'll do that while we talk. While you, t- okay. I can't because I don't have. I'm not logged in as us. We'll add it to YouTube later, to um, Facebook later. And we're live on YouTube <laughs> and Twitter, but not on Facebook. Yeah. Uh, it is Thursday, August 12th, 5.02 p.m. Eastern Time. Um, we are not allowed to have fun anymore, but we are allowed to have Laura Edelston on the show. But Laura Edelston uh, is not allowed to have fun anymore. I know, at least not on Facebook. Um, Laura, uh, you have probably had a very long couple of days and week. Um, do you want to kind of talk to us about the Ad Observer Project and how all of this kind of all of this came about? Who are you and like what are yes. you? Uh, Sorry, what, did what I not say here? that? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I know. Sorry, uh, Laura is a is a researcher at NYU and part of her research, she built a uh, plugin to be used with Facebook that collected uh, data and kind of measured data to try to understand how much misinformation um, and other types of things were happening with ads and political ads and other types of content. Um, is that a pretty good summary? Yeah, right. yeah. Um, but so nice to have you on the show. Well, nice to be here. Um, big fan. So um, I am a computer scientist. Uh, specifically, I am a cybersecurity researcher. And um, you know, way back in 2018, when the you know when everything I think became really crystallized about how much online platforms were being used for information operations, um, you know, we really wanted to try to study this problem and try to understand, you know, just what could be done. So when the platform started making their uh, transparency libraries available, which was uh, the first one to become public was the Facebook ad library that became public in May of 2018. You know, we thought this was an amazing data source. We really wanted to try to understand how it worked and just what could be done with it. So, you know, we started working with that data set pretty much immediately, like the first week it became available. And, and who's the we here? Right. The we, uh, I'm slightly using the academic we. It was, you know, me and me and one other guy um, in our lab in the Center for Cybersecurity at NYU. And, um, you know, back then we were just scraping the web portal trying to figure out, you know, how could we get as much data as possible so that we could try to understand the ecosystem of political advertising online. Because you know, we do take this whole ecosystem approach where because we're trying to study Facebook itself and the way misinformation spreads on Facebook, we aren't trying to get like narrow slices of the political ad ecosystem. We really kind of want to get the whole thing. So um, we started 
collecting all of this data from Facebook and um, eventually became one of the alpha customers of their tool for researchers, which is the Ad Library API, which is a way we can, you know, sort of access all that data programmatically so we can get as much of it as possible. Um, but one of the first things we realized when we were working with this data set back in 2018 is that there were two really big problems with trying to use these tools to understand political misinformation in advertising. One is that we didn't have targeting data. And one of the things that was really, really clear from the, um, you know, from the 2016 Russian IRA uh, data drops is that targeting was very, very important for matching the community specific piece of misinformation to the audience that would be receptive to that, that like framing of the message. So we knew we needed ad targeting data. And the other thing that we really thought was going to be pretty important to get was actually non-political ad data. Because if you only get the ads that Facebook has said, okay, these are the ones that are political, you don't have any way of determining how, you know, how good a job Facebook is doing of drawing that line or just how fuzzy that line is. You really need stuff that's on the other side of the line so you can say, okay, this is where they drew it and this is how consistent it is. So we, we really had those two big gaps. And we did go to Facebook, you know, because we, we've always had communication with them and, you know, pretty, pretty open communication. We talked to them about the fact that we really needed these additional sources of data. Um, but Facebook didn't seem like they're going to be particularly forthcoming about this. So uh, one of the other data sets that existed at the time back in 2018 was the ProPublica Facebook ad collector data set. And this was this had pre this predated the ad library where uh, ProPublica had this browser extension that, you know, very similar to Ad Observer, allowed users to crowdsource um, ad observations. And I figured out how to match the um, the ad records that were in the ProPublica ad collector data that did have targeting information to the Facebook ad library data that had ultimate impression data, and we found some really really interesting. Um, correlations uh, between, you know, basically between how particular targetings uh, wind up getting distributed out to different demographic and geographic groups. We thought this was incredibly promising. And then in January of 2019, uh, Facebook technically blocked the ProPublica Facebook ad collector. And it was really a pretty big blow to, to us because we were finding this targeting data so promising. And that's when we started trying to just think about how on earth we could recreate that data source ourselves. Um, you know, we were like, like I'm a computer scientist. I was a software engineer in industry for a long time. Um, so I really thought that we would have a better shot of building a browser extension that would be more technically robust and would be, be harder for Facebook to break. Um, so, so we started working on that project with some other folks at other at other institutions who are also working on this set of problems and trying to build browser extensions. And we released Ad Observer in March of 2020. I, I was actually looking at it and we released on March 11th, 2020. So it was pretty, the timing was pretty awful, <laughs> but- um, Like right before I left, I fled New York City. Yeah, yeah. 20, March, I think March 13th was my last day in the office. Um, but 
So, you know, we, we launched it and by the summer, we heard from Facebook that they were not thrilled about this. And, you know, at the time they were invoking the FTC consent decree as, you know, creating a problem. Um, and, and walk us through what they asserted the problem was. What were you doing that they thought was a problem for them under their consent decree with the FTC? The argument as best I can construct it. And I, I want to be very clear that, well, let me, let me just lay it out. This is true. Facebook says, and this is true, that we collect uh, and publish Facebook usernames. What they're not saying is that those are the usernames of advertisers. So Facebook ads need to be run against a Facebook page. You can't run a, an ad on Facebook without a public Facebook page. And when an ad is shown to a user in their newsfeed, you'll see the name of the page and then the ad. That's just how it's how it looks. And we uh, we collect and we publish the names of like the Facebook page name of the advertiser. That's true. Um, and that does it have do they have a real name policy around uh, around those pages? So, for instance, like, would it have to be could it be a student pseudonymous like it's like the name of the company doing business right? as? Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. So Facebook does have a real name policy, but that doesn't apply to pages, right? right? That the, yep. Yeah, exactly. You have it in one. So, right, we collect, you know, Coca-Cola and then the ad creative and the ad text and how the ad was targeted. So on a, on a technical level, that Coca-Cola is a, by sort of Facebook's construction of this, a Facebook username. And we do collect like the link to the Facebook public page, which... Um, you know, again, is the Facebook user ID and their construction of this. So where we differ is we just do not think these things are private. These are not, in the best of my knowledge, private information. And to be really clear about this, um, Facebook themselves tell advertisers when they run an ad that as soon as they run that ad, it is not private. And also to be really clear, uh, Facebook itself shows all ads through its web portal while they are active. But um, but yeah, so they, you know, they told us this was sort of the issue they, they said was a problem back in the summer of 2020. But we sort of we sort of bumped along, right? You know, we talked to them about, look, well, if you were to make these data sets available, we would shut down AdObserver. Uh, the two things we've consistently asked for is targeting information for all political ads and some kind of programmatic access to all ads so that we can police that line. Would that include, so would that be free of personally identify? I mean, this might be part of your story, but like when you say you want that, is that include, uh, how did they basically clean that up to get rid of personally identifiable information that might possibly be violating some type of uh, agreement? Or are they saying that that's not possible given the nature of the the information you want? Sorry, I might have actually just hit the like hit the button on the on the issue. But I mean, I think that there are a bunch of issues and I think that's one of them. But so, so here's the thing. I am not a political scientist. I do not care about users or audiences. I care about Facebook. I want the data set of this kind of content 
that does not contain personally identifiable information. And I work really, really hard to make sure there is no personally identifiable or private information in the data we publish. Um, I think that there is a version of this that contains nothing private or personally identifiable that's not that hard to do. And part of why I believe that is, aside from the fact that I do it, um, Google publishes targeting information for political ads. Snapchat yeah. publishes targeting information for political ads. So the idea that this is somehow not possible is like, you know, right. well, there's a lot of well, examples of people who are managing to do it. And I, I, I believe in Facebook's technical ability here. Yeah. So let me think, where were we? Sorry, so, I didn't mean to interrupt. I just was like, no. I'm trying to also kind of build in some of the some of the nuance to some of these problems as you're going through. So that like when it kind of we like hit the, you know, the last like kind of 10 days, five days, seven days, however long it's been probably feels like 20 um, there uh, that we kind of can can have a sense of everything that's going on. Ben. Yeah. So I just want to say that Laura's point that what Facebook identifies as a political ad is not exhaustive of the universe of what a reasonable person would understand as political ad content on Facebook is a really, really important point. And I want to give an outrageous example of this that will uh, uh, interest people in the in the chat who are currently talking about Rachel Maddow uh, because Rachel uh, found this example so compelling that she did a whole show about it. Um, so there's this Russian um, uh, uh, weird content agency. It does uh, uh, YouTube videos, etc. Um, and uh, a, a young scholar who does disinformation work, Lisa Kaplan, wrote a long expose, as she's been on in lieu of fun a couple times, actually. Uh, and Lisa did a long expose of what this company, this is the, the biggest uh, traffic YouTube contributor, uh, sorry, Facebook contributor, other in the entertainment sector of behind Time Warner and Disney in the world. Um, I mean, it is an enormous thing and it has a very small number of what Facebook calls political ads, which are about how, you know, Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin are the greatest people in the world. Uh, but they were Aren't kind they? of AB tested kind of ads worth, you know, 20 bucks or something like that. But it has also a, uh, a, a Facebook channel. Some of its Facebook channels are, you know, have billions, literally billions of subscribers, of, 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 of views. Um, but it has some that have what we would think of as obviously political content, like how Russia is going to take over the world after the United States explodes in a, in a meteor destruction, right? Um, and um, and none of this is considered political content um, by Facebook or by YouTube for that matter. And, um, and yet when a reasonable person looks at it, like say Rachel Maddow, she does a whole show about Mr. Banana and his, uh, the political content, Mr. Banana is one of their 
no longer we 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 killed him between Lawfare and the Rachel Maddow show. Um, uh, uh, Mr. Banana was you know a kind of Russian nationalist banana, literally a banana that talked, and. Uh, any reasonable person looking at this would say this was political content, and yet YouTube and Facebook uh, did not regard it as political content, uh, much less a political advertisement. And so Laura's point, I think, I mean, I will share in the chat both our uh, coverage of Mr. Banana and Rachel. I already put it in. Um, but I, but I think it is really important to appreciate Laura's point here that the universe of what they call political advertising does not remotely exhaust what you might regard as, you know, political propaganda or disinformation on the platform. That's one problem. There's actually a second. So there is this question, there's this like definitional question of how do we define a political ad? And I actually have forthcoming research about this because I think it's a really slippery question. And but but Facebook has a definition. There it is like it is written down, it's in their help pages, you can find it. There's a second question of how consistent are they at enforcing their own definition. And you kind of need to be able to answer both of those and separate them because if you because like Facebook could have a definition of what is political that is wildly off base, but it could be very consistent about enforcing it. Or it could have a definition that is really expansive, but they could be so inconsistent about how they enforce it that you would still have a really big problem. Yeah, or they could have, I mean, how they had for many, many years with the community standards and like user speech was like one set of rules that was very, very vague and standard-like at the top. And then an enforcement mechanism that was hidden from view unclearly enforced with like cross checks and whitelists and all this other stuff and like very intricate sets of rules and no transparency about how it was actually being enforced and how it was like playing out for average users completely this is exactly right yeah i think i think this is a really important point and um i i also i mean think it's important to distinguish you know what what facebook considers an ad is also an important thing. An ad is something you pay Facebook to do. Yeah, it doesn't include influencer content. It doesn't. The FTC doesn't consider an ad. Right. Now, I have bought a few ads on Facebook a few times um, because, you know, I run a content operation. Maybe, like, maybe it would be a good idea to buy some Facebook ads to uh, support lawfare content. So we've experimented with that a few times. Sharing lawfare content in my personal capacity or on lawfare's Facebook page actually turns out to be a much more effective way of spreading it. And so whether, whether that counts as an ad, which it actually doesn't, it's a much, uh, it, it is, a, is a different question from what kind of mind share it might be grabbing and what it's what its influence or 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 operational significance is and so these terms are really fluid and um and it's really important not to get hung up when facebook says we sold x number of ads that had political content 
that is not a reflection of the the amount of political content designed to persuade you the facebook user to do x or believe x rather than to do y or believe y uh, those are completely different things and that is exactly why the other thing we started doing in the summer of 2020 is trying to understand the ecosystem of partisan uh, news uh, in the United States. So we also started using CrowdTangle again in the summer of 2020, and we tried to we we tried to be as comprehensive as we could. We we took in third-party lists of news sources. We got up to about seven or eight thousand um, news providers and political operations and and basically everyone we could find who talked about politics on Facebook, which is primarily people who call themselves news, uh, many of whom uh, I think news providers wouldn't necessarily consider news, but you know this is the world in which we live. Um, and we started monitoring their content as well because it really is one ecosystem. And and Ben, what you were talking about, about the way that um, in order to promote content, there is a real fluid dynamic between using paid ads and using um, and using organic promotion. And you're trying to drive this overall goal, right, of, in, of engagement usually, but also you're trying to get people to, to like click through to your website, usually take some other action. And there is a there is really not only one way to do that, particularly when you're trying to talk about specific audiences, where there are specific audiences that, um, like if you have a very narrow audience that you're trying to connect with on Facebook, ads can be a really good way of finding that very narrow specific audience. But for something like what you do that is really content specific, you know, people who are interested in your content are probably already connected to you organically, right? So that um, that's gonna be a more effective push. But right, so we um, we also started working with organic collection in the summer of 2020, and um, then we sort of you know did our election operation. So we created the Ad Observatory public website, which allowed people to have, basically have dashboards of trying to see how different races, how Facebook ads were playing out in different congressional races in different states. And you could also sort of see a dashboard of how particular advertisers were, um, like what topics they were advertising on, um, you know, where they were spending money geographically, how they were spending money over time. And, and this is where the um, Ad Observer browser extension data really enriched everything else. We also let people see how advertisers were targeting people uh, as observed by our browser extension users. Um, so that was all, you know, pretty successful, I think, public operation. We did a lot of outreach to journalists so that journalists could use our data. Um, we also had a private tool that is that is not public that we provide to groups who try to monitor for misinformation and, and online hate that is effectively a, you know, a sort of more sophisticated search dashboard on top of the, um, of the ad library API. And that was all ticking over until two weeks before the election when we got the cease and desist letter about the browser extension. And the weird thing was, you know, we had had a couple of conversations over the summer and, you know, and then it petered out. Like I hadn't heard anything from Facebook about this since August. And then we got 
cease and desist letter. Um, and, you know, since that happened, we, we sort of survived the election. We survived the, you know, everything the, that came after, which was pretty crazy and, you know, for people who monitor misinformation online. And, um, you know, we have been, we have been negotiating with Facebook over, you know, various ways they could make more data available, various ways we could change the browser extension. Um, but that kind of brings us up to last week and those negotiations were obviously not successful. Yeah, so did you just wake up and kind of find yourself suspended or did you get a warning or? When I was sitting down to dinner, I saw I had an email from Facebook and, and then when I got up from dinner, I saw I had an email from a reporter at Bloomberg asking me for comment. And uh, then I read the email from Facebook and saw that my account had been suspended. And that's when uh, my bounce between lawyers and the media began. Yeah, wow. That's like a crazy, it's a crazy uh, series. I'm gonna try to find your uh, original thread on this after it happened too and post it in the in the chat because I think it's it was really good um, and gave a nice kind of, uh, like was a great kind of encapsulation of everything that had happened. So, so, so what's so, happened? Yeah, so yeah. tell us about the sequence of events since uh, what has happened, uh, what is their position, and what is uh, the consequences for you and your research, and what is your position? So, so this all started, I guess, um, a week and a couple days ago, Tuesday evening last week, this dropped. And, you know, a lot happened pretty fast. I think if I remember correctly, the FTC letter came out. Um, so on Thursday of last week. That was on Thursday. Yeah, yeah, that was like a week ago. On Thursday of last week, the FTC put out a letter saying basically, you know, the FTC consent decree does not compel Facebook to do this. Facebook could authorize um, this research if they if they so choose. Um, and and basically, they shouldn't be doing this in our name. And um, and this is because Facebook specifically cited the FTC consent decree in their blog post saying that this required them to take action against us. And the FTC very helpfully cleared that up. Um, I think I, you know, maybe naively, but I was actually really hopeful on Friday that maybe like we could put all this behind us and um, Facebook might reinstate our accounts and we could just sort of go back to um, business as usual, but that, that hasn't happened. Um, then on Monday, uh, Senators Klobuchar, Coons, and Warner published a letter, um, you know, I, I don't know quite how to classify it, but asking Facebook several pointed questions about the, you know, what steps they've taken against researchers and, and in general, why this is happening. Um, I think we were just incredibly like floored by the amount of support we have gotten from, from regulatory bodies and from people in government and from the public. I mean, man, I'm a PhD student, you know, this is, this is my, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get my dissertation written. Um, so this is, a little strange to say the least. Um, and then, you know, since then we have just been, uh, and then we published a, um, an op-ed in the New York Times 
Tuesday or Wednesday? Was, I think it was, oh, I thought it was Monday night, but was it Tuesday? Okay. I think it might have been Tuesday. The two, the two can coexist. Yeah, that's true. I.e., it goes up Monday, but is in the Tuesday paper or is dated Tuesday. Yeah, something like that. I think, like, we had a journal podcast come out on Monday, and then I think on Tuesday, the New York Times op-ed, oh, it's a guest essay. They, they've renamed it. It's a guest essay now came out and I, I think we're, you know, I, I think we've sort of, we've really been trying to correct what we see as some just factual misstatements in, in Facebook's original blog posts. Like the fact that, you know, when, when Facebook says, you know, we publish user data, I think that means something very specific in people's minds that's not accurate. So we've been really trying to just correct the record. Um, in terms of where we go from here, honestly, we're still figuring that out. We had been, we were, we were supposed to launch uh, a Germany ad observer this week. That is what I had been planning on. Germany has a major election coming up next month. They have a uh, really impressively good at Facebook far right party, um, the AFD, that really, uh, just does tremendously engaging content on Facebook, really orders of magnitude greater than the mainstream parties. And we were really looking forward to providing more transparency about, uh, you know, about that election. And, and we're not gonna be able to do that. So, uh, because that product relies on Facebook ad library data. Obviously our research into organic content, including what we do um, with the Virality Project about vaccine misinformation is over. Um, as is our work looking into what happened on January 6th, uh, because we just can't collect any more data. So that's sort of what's done in terms of what we are going to do. We are still figuring that out. We, um, we do obviously still have data from our browser extension that hasn't been impacted in any way by all of this, which is one of the weird parts. Um, you know, we had been starting to do work with uh, Google and YouTube data. so. Right now, that's where we're going. Interesting. So one of the things, so from an, so as an attorney and having a lot of friends in this space, there was a lot of kind of back and forth on listservs and text chains and everything else about what was happening with what had happened with you, what was happening with Facebook. One of the things that I think happened initially was that while people totally supported you, some were like, yeah, well, what else is Facebook supposed to do? if they really genuinely think that this is going to be like a violation of the consent decree. And even after uh, the FTC issued its letter, there was kind of like, well, this was how, if I was a lawyer for Facebook, I might have played it. Um, and I think that there is a certain amount in which like that was just like a sympathetic argument to some kind of lawyer-minded people or people who are like familiar with how like the counsel's office worked and some people who still thought that even with that being a risk averse kind of like a risk averse decision that Facebook's lawyers put that there had been so much conversation around this prior to um, everything happening that this it seemed like obvious pretext. Ben? Yeah, I, I mean, if I were a lawyer for Facebook, I would make this argument too, because it's <laughs> extremely convenient for the client. Um, uh, the question is whether if I were a lawyer for the FTC, 
and I saw the research, I would say, hey, this while permitting this research violates um, the terms of our consent decree. And so my question is, have you had any indication of a problem under the consent decree from anybody other than Facebook? Uh, no. And look, I'm not a lawyer, although I want a law degree when I finish this. I'm not either, though I play one on TV. But I have read the consent decree. And here I think is the problem with Facebook's reading of the consent decree. Let's assume that their reading is correct for a second, which I don't think it is, right? The, you know, so everything in the FTC consent decree applies to this list of covered information. If it's not in the, if, if it's not about the covered information, then it doesn't apply. When you look at that list of covered information, one of the things that's covered uh, is username and password. Every password manager that exists uh, reads the username and password field on the Facebook page. So if you're gonna take this, this really quite extreme reading of the FTC consent decree that says that then users- any type of password that, like, manager. Right, that, that users aren't allowed to use a tool to access their own username, or to, then you have to take action against every single browser, or every single browser-based password manager, which is kind of a ludicrous position. I, I, I mean, there, there's more examples like this of like things like Grammarly, right? That access the actual content that people type. If I just have a lot of trouble with this argument because even if you accept it, it's just in, being implied incredibly inconsistently. Okay, so help me out here. What is Facebook? I mean, they clearly care about this. And your hypothesis is, and I, think it's, and I think it's pretty reasonable. Um, it's not about the consent decree. The consent decree is a, is a convenient uh, pair of handcuffs that they've put on themselves and said, look, our hands are tied. <laughs> um, it's just terrible. Um, so what is their concern? I mean, yes, you publish data, but other people publish data too. No one and else publishes data. Okay, so what is it that you're doing that no one else is doing? And it's what is and, and why and why is it that Facebook is concerned about that? Hand on heart, to my knowledge, the one thing we do that nobody else does is we publish ad data. That is the only thing I know of. Now look. I am really does not that, gonna get- Does that like hurt them financially at all? Like, is that like threatening to their business model? Like, is that something that like other people use that ad data and to like- They publish ad right. data. I mean, you can go and I look at the- I publish ad targeting. Now, look, one thing I am super not gonna do is get into trying to read Facebook's mind. I am a scientist, I have no idea why this happened. The one thing, though, that I know that I do that I don't know of anybody else who does is publish ad targeting data. And so, so man, I don't know. This is literally the best, the best, I, the best thing I can come up with because there are other browser extensions out there that do what ours does, um, but the others that I know of don't publish data. Um, and what do they do with it? I mean, what, what do the other ones do? What's the difference between yours and the lots of other 
you know, uh, plugins that send data about your Facebook use to somebody other than Facebook? So obviously there are many that are business-based. Um, Facebook has actually taken action against quite a few of those. Um, to be fair, the academic ones that I know of or projects like Who Targets Me. Are you familiar with Who Targets Me? Okay, it's a it's a very similar browser extension to ours. It's based out of the UK. Um, it's actually a very interesting project. There, um, you know, they do collect the um, the ads and the ad targetings, but they don't publicly release the data sets. They what do, do they analysis. do with it? They do analysis and reports, but they don't publish the raw data. Um, so I think I think that's one. Um, but there are others, right? Like the the Citizen Browser Project by the Markup. They um, that is like an entire browser uh, of of information collect collection, and it's a fascinating project. And they again they're doing really amazing reporting, um, but they don't publish data. So I really do not know why, and I really don't want to pretend that I do. But this is the one thing I know of where what I do is is pretty different than what those other folks do. And again, like, I don't think Facebook cares about my, you know, whatever data set of several hundred thousand ads. If I were, here, here's where I would speculate. And, and because I think this is a little bit fairer, because if I were Facebook, I would be concerned about some kind of precedent setting. Um, that, you know, I'm really trying to be as charitable as I can here, but that's all I got. All right, I'm so, color me uh color me confused now because if i were a facebook lawyer or god forbid public relations person or policy person and i heard okay we have a great plan there is one academic researcher and her name is laura edelson and uh you've most people have never heard of her or her research. Uh, sorry, Laura. Um, but um, uh, we're going to make a national celebrity out of her on Tuesday. Um, we have a great plan. We're going to single her out to ban her from Facebook. She's going to have an op-ed in the New York Times within a couple days. Every reporter in the country is going to, you know, like have her on, you know, on speed dial. And um, by the way, you know, her position when she finishes her PhD on the academic market, it's going to be way enhanced by this. What do you think, Wittes? Is this a good idea? I, I, I think I would say, um, like, the fact that you're laughing answers the question, right? Like, um, was this a screw up? I mean, was it, was it like somebody was like, I've got it. We're, you know, I knew this Laura Edelson character in college and now I'm powerful and I'm at Facebook and we're going to, you know, like we're, we're going to get her. Um, or was it like, it seems so, so wildly dumb. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, Man, that was a, you really got her going, Ben. <laughs> She's no, like, I'm, 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 gen I'm genuine. The more I listen to you, the more I'm like, what moron at Facebook is responsible for this? So, I mean, I'm trying to be as charitable as, po as possible here. 
I mean, is there somebody you refused to date in high school who now is like a Facebook person? I mean, I mean, not intentionally, but, but, um, no, I mean, in all seriousness, if you were Facebook, why would you necessarily think that an attempt to just paint, you know, paint us as another Cambridge Analytica would necessarily fail, right? Um, we. I think one of the things that's going on here is we are really, really cautious. We are not, you know, so, and some of this is that I'm a computer scientist and specifically I'm a cybersecurity researcher. So I am incredibly careful about privacy and security, right? That is, you know, I cannot tell you how many months we spent trying to design our browser extension in such a way that it was bulletproof, that it really would never compromise users' privacy. We're super, super careful and we think about that stuff a lot. And maybe Facebook doesn't, you know, didn't realize going into it just how careful we have been. So I think there's that. I think the other thing I'm gonna say is like, if you're Facebook at this point, how much more, how much do you care about bad PR? You know, are, is there, is there a hole? Is like, does the hole get any deeper? It gets deeper. No, I, I, I mean that I, mean, I was joking before. Um, in the long run, Facebook can't survive with the degree of ill will that it has built. And they know that. That's why they're spending so much energy across a bunch of different domains to try to, I mean, they've spent, what was it, $130 million on the oversight board? Um, Three, yeah. Three hundred million dollars. What, no, what I mean, I mean that was just the, what they gave to the project. That right, wasn't but even there's then there's like their the, internal spending e about it. Yeah. I mean, it is not a plausible, you know, thing to ask the consumer. Uh, it's one thing if you're, you know, John D. Rockefeller to say, "Well, I, I'm I, I'm the one who has the oil," um, but at the end of the day. Uh, people have to enjoy the experience of using Facebook and and they like hating the entity too many people hating the entity too much is not a plausible business model and I, and I I actually I actually think they their their uh, behavior reflects that they understand that even if they don't have any idea what to do about it I have sort of two thoughts. Um, one, did did either of you happen to read the Issy Lepowski protocol piece like m from several months ago about um, my project? And so, so for folks who aren't familiar, several months ago, um, a reporter- I love Izzy, she's great. Yeah, she, she's a great reporter. A reporter from the protocol called me up and was just like, you know, hey, I wanna kind of write a piece about what's going on with you and Facebook. And I'm like, well, you know, can't really talk about it. We're in negotiations. Um, but if you want to write a piece that says not much is happening, you know, sure. Um, and she went to Facebook and Facebook told her that, uh, you know, there was user data in my um, in my data sets that I publish. And I panicked, right? I was terrified because um, if this had been true, actual user data, not advertiser data, um, this would mean that all of my research protocols were invalid, right? That everything that I had done, my methodologies for ensuring user privacy were not working. And this would have, and additionally, there would be like real world harm. 
uh, that was that I was responsible for. It, would, it was just awful, the stuff of my nightmares. And eventually, uh, through a lot of, of wrangling, Issy was able to clarify with the folks at Facebook that what they meant was advertiser, you know, names. But what was awful about the whole experience was that, like, I think every everyone going through a PhD program has a moment of existential doubt about their research, where you think, this is not working, this is totally fatally flawed. And I had to have mine in front of a reporter uh, while I was being gaslit by Facebook PR people. And, and then it all got written up for, for everyone to see. And right, that, I was so, like that day I was terrified, I was so scared. And, and so that was itself a wild PR trip that I think wound up being pretty not good looking for Facebook. But I think, Ben, the point that you're getting at about how this is, this approach to running a business and this approach to PR just cannot possibly be in the long-term interest of Facebook is actually really borne out by the numbers because if you look at audiences, younger audiences don't go on Facebook anywhere near as much. Although well, they do go on Instagram. Well, that's, so that's, that leads us to our net, to our question from Ev. Ev. From a younger yes. uh, audience. Go for it. Um, yeah, so that, that exactly uh, is, is the perfect segue to my question. Uh, do people still use Facebook a lot? And like in 2021, how important is Facebook in the misinformation, disinformation crisis? If we compare it to YouTube, Twitter, or Instagram, for instance, I know that uh, Facebook, Instagram, kind of the same, but kind of not too. Yeah, so Facebook is still an incredibly important piece of the overall social media landscape. Um, Pew puts out pieces, puts out studies about this just about annually, I think. And and Facebook is still, you know, a monster. You know, something like seventy percent of the of the U.S. adult population has a Facebook account. I think. I'm 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 trying to think if I can remember who's put out work about this. I would say my the intuitive... last number I had was sorry not to interrupt, but I just know the I like have a good sense of it is like that there is a, that that the 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 steadily increasing demographic is in the global south, particularly in places with zero rating that Facebook is providing internet services for, um, or things like that, and that like basically right now that the U.S. population is like eight percent of all of of Facebook's total users or something around that, or was that was like the number like a, like a couple months ago. So the, the thing to know also when you're talking about ads, and I'm sure you know this, Laura, so I'm just telling the audience, uh, but the thing to kind of think about with ads is that you're also, every user is not created equal in terms of value to the company. So that you, US high, high wealth places with like disposable income or lots of disposable income where every user has a, like, those have higher those are higher value users to Facebook than like um, zero rating users or things like that though you know so th those are that's another kind of thing but the the general the gen I mean Facebook is still increasing in size yeah absolutely yeah. Um, so the uh, but they are, at least in the U.S., they have a lower market share among young audiences. And that is where I think a case could be made that Facebook's moderation policy is probably a part of that. Because if you, you know, I, I don't want to say 
okay, the bulk of the misinformation is on this platform. But if you look at just the moderation policies that each platform says, Facebook allows much more, like a much wider range of content. YouTube allows a very wide range of content when compared to um, platforms like Snapchat or TikTok um, that have, uh, just from a policy perspective, allow a allow less extreme content, I would say. Yeah, if Evelyn Dweck were here, she would say that uh, YouTube consistently gets a free ride. And yeah. we have these, uh, you know, everybody knows the name Mark Zuckerberg. Everybody knows the name uh, uh, Jack, Dorsey. Jack Dorsey. Everybody knows, uh, 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 you know, uh, certain social media titans, and yet there is this engine of disinformation in YouTube that somehow nobody seems to focus on as much. I used to consistently make this argument that, you know, we should close every blog post with, you know, Google Delenda Est because we spend so much time talking about Facebook and at least partially we do that because of something that Facebook actually does really well, which is they actually do make a good amount of data, comparatively speaking, about political advertising available. I really do want to give them credit. They make more information about political advertising available than anybody else other than Snapchat. Snapchat is amazing, but compared to Google, Facebook does a good job. I was just going to say, too, one thing about YouTube. It is not just that they're like, first of all, YouTube is is a smaller entity within Google. So like the fact that like whereas like Facebook and I think that like Evelyn doesn't really do this justice because like she acts like they're all equal, but they're not both in terms of like how they're run as companies. And then they're not equal, too, in terms of like the medium. YouTube has like many hours long video it's even different than TikTok, which is like limited to a number of seconds you can have like strings of them but like there is just it is so difficult to do content moderation on video still and the like there is content moderation on the audio and then there's content moderation on the video side of it and then there's moderation of the two of them interacting and so like it is i just want to like, say i just want to say as an editor Content moderation actually isn't that difficult. Right. Content moderation is called editing, and there's a good principle that you shouldn't grow faster than you can edit well. And this is an unobjectionable principle among content generators, which we traditionally call journalists and writers. And, and, and content moderation is difficult in social media where we have made a proactive decision to violate that rule. And, and this is, I think, one of the places where I just really, I am so shocked at the degree to which people are willing to accept that tech disruption means that tech is, is a, it's just given a free pass to not obey the law, right? There is a tremendous amount of content in advertising on Facebook that violates existing law, but it's very hard to it's very hard for the FTC to actually enforce because they don't have access to ad data. And everyone just accepts that, well, you know, Facebook has this reactive review strategy and that's just how it has to work at that scale. And what that means inherently is that people are shown ads that violate the law. 
And this wouldn't be acceptable for newspapers. This wouldn't be acceptable for anybody else. I, I, this is exactly right. And we, you know, I think there's a, this relates to the 230 debate in the sense that we accept um, behavior from the platforms that we would simply never accept from publications. And, you know, the question is why? And the answer is because we have to, because platforms are really important. And that's actually answering the question by restating the question. Um, the, the, it comes back to the question, why shouldn't you be responsible for the things you publish? And as somebody who was an editor at the Washington Post when, or an editorial writer at the Washington Post, when 230 was, right after 230 was passed, it was always a head scratcher to me why we were responsible for our letter, like legally responsible for the letters to the editor that we chose to publish, but not for the comments that we chose to publish. And, um, you know, and that is a policy choice that Congress made from which a huge amount follows. And it is not obviously the right one, though, though people try to try to uh, sort of demand that it be accepted as the right one by saying things like 230 was essential to the development of the Internet. That actually doesn't mean it's good policy. Well, and I, I also want to push back very slightly on something that something, Kate, that you said earlier. Content moderation is expensive. That's different from it being hard. We do know how to do it and it costs a lot of money, but that doesn't, it's, it's like, it's this thing that, this is other thing that tech people very often do is they fall back on saying, well, it's like, oh, it's this hard unsolved problem. And it's like, well, actually, no, we, we do actually know how to do that. And it would be expensive and it would change your business model. But that's different from saying we don't know how to do it. Yeah, we no, do know I, how to I, do it. It's I, called I, hiring editors. Yes, exactly. But we know how to get content to those people. I don't want to keep Paula waiting because she's been very patient, but I will just say that like- I do. I, I think we should like Alice her till the end of the show and then give her like 30 seconds to ask her question. Okay. Um, anyways, I was just going to say really quickly, like I, I take your point, Laura. I mean, I, and, and I absolutely agree. I think that like you, they, there's lots more to be spent on like content moderation. I do think that there are a subset of minor subset, but significant at volume and scale um, of really edge cases that are very hard, that even if you had a lot of really smart people working on them, it would be difficult to make them and they'd be giant PR decision disasters for Facebook. That is not like the majority of it. I think the majority of it is teenagers bullying each other and being assholes and like people posting bad stuff and whatever. But like- I Also I solvable with a very particular type of editor okay, called okay. a teacher. Okay. All right, Paula, go ahead. Um, okay, so my question is, is, what are your thoughts on regulating Facebook as a consumer product? And what I mean by that is like, we regulate like appliances, food items, like cars, like you can't just put like, on, you know, checked meat on, you know, the, the store floor for people to eat without making sure it like, was tested. And I see, I mean, forget this information, there are a lot of studies about 
the way that Instagram affects young people and you know their psychological health. Um, and I was wondering, what are your thoughts on regulating as an actual product that people consume? And would that provide you with more data if they had to go through different you know hurdles before you know their product went out on the market or the app store? Like really quick clarifying question, Paula. What are you talking about? Like individual user speech as product, or are you talking about ads? I mean, like the actual like product itself. Like for example, like I think for like, like some of these platform as a product, if I'm understanding correctly. Yeah, like I think for Instagram or Facebook, like you have to be a certain age, but you can really easily lie on there. And like I mean, like if there was like a product, like you can't easily lie. You're not supposed to be easily lie to you know get alcohol like you you have to have like a an id to verify that and like when you buy appliances from the store or something they meet quality standards and you know there are you know young people who are i guess being negatively impacted by what i someone might call like a failure of you know the quality of the content on instagram or facebook for example i don't know if someone else would not classify that as a consumer product I think you can, um, but I'm not sure if like, you know, the hurdles that, for example, you know, specific consumer products go through, whether it be food or like things that you buy for your home can be applied to social media to not only prevent that harm, but also give researchers and the government more information on the negative impacts. Kate, I'm not a lawyer. I know. I kind of like I like I I mean. There's a lot. There's a lot to unpack there. Well, first of all, it's difficult to disaggregate Facebook as a product versus Facebook as a service versus Facebook as speech itself. There are many different things, and then you run into inevitably right now that you've had a lot of. I'm actually just researching this at the moment, but like there have been a lot of people who have written and courts have found that like the algorithms that those then the way that Facebook curates a newsfeed or the way that Google organizes search and ranks things are its own First Amendment, they have their own First Amendment rights to do that. So you can't regulate them because the First Amendment prevents government from regulating like something that infringes on like like a, a free a, the freedom of expression. And so I think that like there's plenty of things in terms of consumer protection like the meat on the floor kind of example is like an example of classic consumer protection where you have like various types of like transparency that has to like be clear and like there have to be certain standards that are met and there have to be reporting on these things. And then you create liability if those things are violated. Like they cost them a lot of money. Part of like the debate over section 230 is that it's very hard to, to, to like, to kind of like force these companies to be like, to, to be uh, privately civilly liable or publicly liable for these things and part of it is that we don't have those structures in place yet and we don't know what that would mean when the product is essentially speech and so we don't do that with like you know you can go and get the national Enquirer and you can read all about bat boy which is fake news and like we can't like stop you stop them from publishing because that's their first amendment right to do that right like there's so there's plenty of lies and plenty of things that like happen um and so I well, just what's think really interesting yeah. about this, and I'll fully admit I do not understand this because I am not a lawyer, is that you know Facebook has always been taking has been trying to take a position that it is not itself a speaker, right? right? And well, they do they they do both. They're not a media well, company, yeah. but they are a speaker. It's like a 
because if they're a media company, then they'd be liable for defamation. But if they're a speaker, then they can have their own First Amendment rights. So how does that and not work? be regulated? I, I've always wondered how this works with the the. So the way I think about it, from a like technical perspective, is that Facebook is an is a a marketplace with many speakers, and the influence that Facebook has is to amplify some voices and quiet yes. others. And this so is like literally what I was writing five minutes before I came in thing. So I'll put it this way. If you think of like speech, like we're, you're, well, let's, I'm going to complicate this a little. You have users that are speakers and users that are listeners. Yes. Okay. And there are first amendment rights and like theory addresses this of like a first amendment right to listen, like a first amendment right to get in, get information and have information. Right. So it's not entirely just about being able to speak, but what, Basically, you have, and I think this is part of what I'm trying to complicate this problem because people keep talking past each other. You have speakers. You have me going on Facebook and posting something, and I'm a speaker. But then you have a secondary level of, Ben would call it an editor. You have a secondary letter of amplification or moderation or something else that happens in which they try to match my speech to the best set of listeners that they can match it to. And that in and of itself, in this kind of glut of information that we're being confronted with right now, is is like is its own kind of service. That the algorithm that does that is, I would say, starting to get into the level of kind of like an editor or a first amendment right to do that. That doesn't necessarily get them mean that we can regulate them because we don't regulate newspapers, right? Like we're in like certain but we do hold them liable for defamation. So I'm there Think, anyway, think so of, think of like, Facebook as like Carnegie Hall, only the decision of what acts get to go up on the stage is made by a computer. Yeah. So sure. if, if there's a defamation, it's not Carnegie Hall that engaged in the defamation. It's the speaker. This is the... Sure, the, but then you have to move away from your your... Like Facebook is an editor, Facebook is a media company. No, no, this editing. is the way they want to be understood. Oh, okay. I don't, and and the way actually the law consents to understand them. I don't yeah. think that is a stable or reasonable way to understand. But but Carnegie Hall would say it has it has First Amendment rights um, to put on certain acts and not put on certain other acts. But if you know somebody gets up there and says, Laura Edelson is a horrible person who who eats children. Well, Carnegie Hall didn't libel you. The speaker libeled you. That's the way Facebook wants to be understood. I mean, and, I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> well, children taste really good. Yeah. Children aren't, they're like an entirely different thing from vegetables, minerals, <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and animals, yes. Just so um, I respond to what Ben said. I think again like as as a non-lawyer to me it feels like we have crossed a line particularly after the election and january 6th and everything around vaccine misinformation where one way or another regulation is coming and for me i am just trying to think about like what does that what is that actually going to look like because right now there's so little research there's so little evidence that i feel like i'm like racing to, to try to do some of that research, to create some of that evidence, because regulation is coming one way or another. And the question is just, is it going to be sensible research-based evidence or or not? Amen. Well, I mean- Laura Edelson, you're child eater or not, you're a great American. 
one thing Facebook has convinced me of uh, with this episode is that your research is super important, and I'm really interested. Well, I didn't already know that, <laughs> and uh, I, uh, there's a lot of stuff to consume in the world, and Facebook has convinced me that while you may be consuming children, I am going to consume some of your work over the next few months, which is the, the weeks or days, which is not what I'm sure Facebook had in mind, but, uh, you know, the law of unintended consequences, so I urge all of you uh, to uh, download uh, Laura's uh, uh work and I guess you can't download you can down you, you can you download add observer go to adobserver.org you can download for Firefox or Chrome you just can't post a link on Facebook I don't see. post a link on Facebook or you'll get banned yes right. oh, so, but you can still like, use we got it. banned once because yes. Ben tried to invite QAnon to like all of our all of our no to I, our tried show. To, I tried to invite Adrian oh, LaFrance the executive editor of the Atlantic who had written a story about QAnon. You hashtagged it. You hashtagged QAnon. You they took monster. Us, took us I did, Anyways. and they took us down, and yeah. then they did it again. Um, all of anyway. which is a really long-winded way of saying uh, that it's been a super pleasure having you on the show. Yeah. And, um, uh, and, let's, uh, and everybody should respond to this episode by downloading and installing Ad Observer. Uh, just don't mention it on Facebook. And um, we will be back tomorrow. It will be cheese night. And um, and uh, I'm really excited about it. I have some manchego that I've been saving for cheese night. Um, don't ask, Laura. Don't, you don't although join us night. for cheese night. Yeah, anytime. you're welcome to come. I don't uh, cheese either. You're vegan? Oh, my God. Uh, She's like even worse than a child eater. Yeah, just kidding. Just kidding. At least children have some nutrients. Um, um, We will be back tomorrow, 22 hours and 53 minutes from now. And KK, until then. We don't have fun anymore, but we do have plugins. Still. Bye.